Hello and welcome everybody to History 256. This is Dr. Tully. And today we're going to be talking about the 1950s. So I would love for you to go to your um, Moodle and get the PowerPoint for today. So I'll give you a second to do that. Hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, remember, we do have spring break coming next week. So there may be some podcasts that come up over spring break, but you're not going to have any quizzes or tests or anything due during that time period. And the reason you're not going to have any quizzes over spring break is because you have a quiz right now. Uh, make sure you check on Moodle after you listen to this podcast, and you will see that there is a quiz up. So, you know, take quiz number five. This should be your final quiz. Uh, if you paid attention to today's lesson and uh, the last lecture, you should be a-okay. You'll be fine. Um, Y'all have been doing really well in the quizzes since we moved online, so uh, I, I think you're going to do great. So, all right. Okay, everybody's got their PowerPoints. Let's go. This is the 1950s. Now, when we talk about the 50s, we're really talking a lot about one guy. Uh, that guy is President Eisenhower. If you go over one picture, you'll see a picture of Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh, by 1952, Truman is incredibly unpopular. That's due in large part to what happens in 49. Uh, he's not very popular for what happens in the Korean War, but mainly, you know, Russia getting the bomb and also China going communist. It makes it look like the U.S. is losing the Cold War. And Americans are looking for, like, a really strong figure that's going to fight communism, be a tough person, and they're really looking uh, towards Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was the general in charge of the European theater during World War II. He was the guy in charge of D-Day. He is very popular. He's incredibly popular. He's seen as a strong guy to go up against um, the communists, uh, kind of give strength to the country. Uh, we don't have this too much nowadays, but you know, it's not unusual in American history for the country to look to a general to become president. I mean, you have Washington, probably our most popular president ever. He's a general. Um, U.S. Grant, general, uh, popular. Um, William Henry Harrison, you know, he only dies in 30 days, but he was a general. Uh, and, and Eisenhower kind of fits into this mold. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see young Eisenhower. Uh, that's him and his wife, Mamie. Uh, he is kind of a career soldier. He doesn't do too, too much in World War I. He does a lot more in World War II. Uh, he's originally from Kansas, and he's kind of apolitical. He's, he's more of a soldier guy. Uh, there he is with his wife, Mamie. Mamie Eisenhower, she's fun. Um, you get one more picture, there they are in the White House eating turkey or ham or, or some sort of, or of, of meat. Uh, Eisenhower is actually approached by both parties. Uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats uh, approach him to become the nominee. Um, it's pretty obvious he's going to win if that's the case. Um, if you're ever offered the nomination by both parties, it's pretty good indication you're probably going to win. Now, Eisenhower himself, like I said, he's apolitical. He's very much a centrist. He's not really too far to the right, too far to the left, not very liberal, not very conservative. Uh, he's promising kind of a middle-way presidency, kind of a, you know, not too partisan of a presidency. Uh, that there are fears within the Republican Party that he's too centrist, he's not conservative enough. So they pick um, a 39-year-old by the name of Richard Nixon, Richard Milhouse Nixon. If you go over one slide, you'll see he and Eisenhower together. Uh, Nixon is actually weirdly seen as a young, hip, uh, 
pick in this time period. Uh, he's you know he's a World War II vet. He's a um, gosh, what else can I say? He's 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 young. He's an up and comer in the Republican Party. Uh, the main the thing I want you to remember about Nixon, because Nixon eventually does become president, he is pretty much anti-communism personified. Uh, if there is one thing that kind of defines Nixon's early political career, kind of his reputation, is the fact that he is Mr. Anti-Communist. Pretty much anything he does cannot be seen as communist. He, uh, he kind of starts getting notoriety during the uh, Army McCarthy hearings. You know, he gets to, he's one of the few people to emerge unscathed from McCarthy. Uh, Nixon, like I said, he's young. He's um, 39 in this time period. Quite young. Uh, he is you know, a Navy veteran. He's married. He's got two kids. We'll talk about him a bit later. Lifelong member of the NAACP, so he's good for the black vote in this time period, which I never th you probably never thought you'd hear the phrase, Richard Nixon, good for the black vote. But, yeah, he was seen as that in the 50s. Um, the Democrats have to nominate somebody. Uh, the, the Democrats have to nominate somebody because, I mean, they have to. You're not going to have a unanimous presidential election. They go with Adelaide Stevenson. Adelaide Stevenson is a nice enough guy. Uh, he seems a bit too intellectual for his own good. He's seen as an egghead. He's seen as somebody who's a little too smart, a little too, uh, a little too smart for his own good. It doesn't really matter because Eisenhower wins in a landslide. How big of a landslide? He even gets Adelaide Stevenson's home state of Illinois. However, Democrats do keep most of the Congress. So you're seeing that Democrats are still kind of popular on the state level. However, Eisenhower, he is just too dang popular. Now, as I said, Eisenhower promises what he calls a middle way presidency. He's not going to go too far to either extreme as president. He's not going to go too far to the right, too far to the left. Um, it also should be important to mention he's the first not-Democrat to be president in like 20 years. Remember, um, actually, it's exactly 20 years. Uh, FDR comes in office in 1932, and then it's 1952, so since then, you have had nothing but Democratic president. So the fact that you've had so many Democratic presidents shows that the Democrats are doing something which is somewhat popular. And a lot of that has to do with the legacy of the New Deal, the fact that they got the country through the World War. Uh, Eisenhower does not challenge the New Deal directly, Okay. He does not challenge the New Deal directly. He decides he wants to get rid of the excess. He says we don't need as much New Deal programs. You know, the economy's doing pretty well. Actually, very well. Uh, we don't need all this stuff. Uh, he promises to do things that seem like typical Republican stuff. Uh, curtail government spending, balance the budget, reduce taxes. Uh, but he's also talking about cutting the military. Uh, this is interesting. Remember, he is a general. He is the guy who won World War II in the European theater. And he's saying the military is too big. He's saying there's too much military. Um, we need to, you know, we don't need this big of a military, even though the Cold War is bubbling oil up. He says we don't need that much military. Also, another thing he does that's not very Republican, he's also very pro-union. Uh, Eisenhower is very much in favor of unions, uh, it, he pretty much wants a higher material standard for everybody, which is something you could actually get in this time period. But he does break with Republicans in another way by saying that Social Security and uh, food stamps need to stay. Uh, when we talk about the access, he says that excess that needs to be trimmed, Social Security and food stamps are not part of it. In fact, he even uses a fun phrase. He says getting rid of those programs will be quote-unquote stupid. 
He straight up says, stupid. He says, it's dumb to get rid of Social Security or food stamps, you know, providing pensions for people in their old age or people who can't otherwise work, or for, um, you know, taking food away from hungry folks. That's just dumb. We should do that. Uh, probably the thing best known for Eisenhower when it comes to his government programs, he spends a ton of money, a ton, ton, ton of money on the interstate highway system. Uh, the interstate highway system, um, the interstate, we know it, we love it, I, I use it every day, going to and from Nichols. Actually, I'm on, a, gosh, three different interstates, if I think about it, uh, whenever I go to and from work. Uh, I, I live very close to I-12, I get on I-12 to I-55, then I catch I-10, and then I go get into Nichols, I, I go through the swamp, there's at least one roadkill gator a week, that's not even an exaggeration. Uh, the interstate highway system, uh, he's kind of taking it off the German Autobahn. Uh, the Germans have what's called the Autobahn system, it's not Autobahn like the Autobahn Zoo, but Autobahn. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a highway system. The U.S. does not have federal highways in this time period. They have some federal highways, not as extensively. Uh, he's able to sell this by saying it's needed in case of a nuclear attack. The idea that we need roads with there's no stopping, uh, they're very wide, they, go, they connect all the major cities so that we could you know, move supplies or evacuate people fairly easily. It does cost a ton of money. Uh, it, call, it, it makes about 47,000 miles of roads in the first bank of the interstate. There's a lot more of that now. Uh, it has a huge impact. Uh, new jobs and industries spring up all over the place because of the interstate. Uh, shipping goods across the country becomes a lot cheaper and easier because of the interstate. Uh, interstates are free, unlike toll roads. Uh, they're also, you don't stop on interstate. If you're on a federal highway... There could be stop signs or stoplights. You go through small towns. Uh, for instance, there's um, where I live in Albany, there's, there's a highway, 190, and uh, there are stop signs. There's not too, too many, but there are red lights and stuff when you go into little towns. In the interstate, you never stop. Once you get on the interstate, it, there's no stopping on the interstate unless you decide to get off to an over-ramp. Uh, not an over-ramp, an off-ramp. Not an over-ramp, good gosh. Uh, there are jobs that spring up across, like, you know, every interstate exit's got a gas station, a hotel, you know, mini-mart, whatever. Uh, if your company's next to the interstate, you're guaranteed much better shipping. Uh, it, it's phenomenal. It, it, it changes the way we uh, live in places. Uh, suburbs, like further suburbs can really come out. The idea of a commuting from a, a place where you don't... You live in a place where you don't work. You know, yes, you have older suburbs like the Garden District in New Orleans, but now you're having a place like Laplace. You know, pretty much everybody who lives in Laplace works in New Orleans in some form or fashion. And you can now do that thanks to, uh, you know, the interstate system. Uh, it also totally changes vacations. Uh, vacations change tremendously because of the interstate. Uh, that's kind of the, the middle-class vacation is driving somewhere. Um, I have plenty of memories of, you know, uh, whenever I was a kid, you know, getting in my parents' minivan and we're driving, you know, a couple states over to go to, like, Disney World or the, you know, Tennessee or, or whatever. You know, just going places via the, uh, via the interstate. Uh, totally changes vacations. Americans are now taking more vacations. This is a very good federal program. Uh, if you want to just talk about sheer ROI... Um, I believe for every $1 the federal government spent on the interstate, it's made back about $16 in taxes. 
that's a really good return. If, if anybody ever offers you a chance, like, hey, if you give me $1, I'll give you $16, take it. Actually, they're probably lying to you because there's nothing with that good of a return. But the interstate is. Um, you know, governments, the federal government gets taxes from, like, you know, sales taxes, gas taxes. So even though the interstates are free, there are ways to generate revenue off of it. So that's something seen as very good. Uh, Eisenhower as general is very well-liked. He has a super well-liked persona. Um, everybody seems to like Eisenhower. Uh, one of his campaign slogans is, I like Ike. And um, that seems to be the, the sentiment of the country. You know, um, he's a very even-keeled guy. If you look at that same picture, I know we've been looking at the same picture for a while. Uh, that is Nixon and Eisenhower on the golf course. Um, Eisenhower spent a lot of time on the golf course. In fact, only our current president spent more time on the golf course. But that's because Eisenhower was very good at delegating. Um, Eisenhower is used to the military background. He's used to like giving people orders and people carrying them out. So he kind of brings that same sentiment into the White House. And so he might have looked lazy, or he might have looked like he was just goofing off the entire time or golfing the entire time. But in actuality, he's doing a very solid job of just delegating things to other people. Now, to be fair, he had just beaten the Nazis. So <laughs> the country is kind of ready to like you know give somebody um, a little of, of leniency. Eisenhower had done that. Uh, also, there's a lot of talk of Eisenhower being respected by Stalin because of, you know, Stalin never respected Truman because Truman was a young spring pup. Um, they figured that, you know, Eisenhower would get Stalin's respect because Eisenhower did indeed fight against the Nazis, did a pretty good at D-Day. Um, about a month after Eisenhower is inaugurated, Stalin does him one better, and Stalin dies. Um, Stalin just dies shortly after... Shortly after uh, Eisenhower sworn in, so that's one major communist down. I mean, way to go, Eisenhower. Uh, that does that about does it for Eisenhower. I'll be talking about him in a little bit more as we go into the fifties. But this is kind of the backdrop you need to think about. Now, the other thing you need to realize, you go over one more slide, is that American economy is doing amazing, just amazing. Uh, I call it screwball materialism screwball materialism. Just this idea that it's, they have so much money, it's just funny. It's just not even, it's, well, maybe it's not even funny. It's just stupid amounts of money. Um, business is booming. Prosperity is up. This is probably the best the American economy has ever been. Now, why is the American economy doing so well? Because they have no competition um, at all. Remember, pretty much ev the rest of the industrial world, like Europe and Asia, were totally devastated by World War II. The U.S. was, yeah, I mean, yes, people died in the U.S. in World War II, but not in the U.S. mainland. But, you know, soldiers died. I'm not discounting their sacrifice by any means. But the country itself, it was actually doing better economically before after the war than it was before. That is not the case literally anywhere else in the world. Um, if I had the map of the world in front of me, I'd be like, this place is a quagmire, all of Europe, and this place is a quagmire, all of Asia. So pretty much the U.S. has no competition and plenty of markets. So the U.S. is making money, like stupid money, just like ridiculous amounts of money all over the place. And this really cements the change that had kind of been brewing since the 1920s of the U.S. is cemented from a producer culture to a consumer culture. Like I said, I mean, I've talked about this in class. I was actually talking about this to y'all whenever, before we left. The U.S. had been flirting with consumer culture really since the 1920s, but now the economy is good enough to support the entire change. 
this manifests pretty much in so much money. And with so much money, people have tons of stuff to spend it on. They could buy TVs, cars, TV dinners, appliances, knickknacks, whatever you want. Go over one more picture. Go over one slide. I want you to look at this picture for a while. I love this picture. Uh, this is an ad for just your ordinary American family uh, going out to, for a day at the lake, uh, their little vacation. Look at all the crap they have with them. Like, they brought their boat. I don't know why they brought a portable swimming pool to the uh, lake, but okay. They brought a lawnmower. They brought, um, you know, two boat motors. I just noticed the dad had a second boat motor. They brought their Wheaties. Their Coleman everything. Uh, their Coleman table. You know, she's grilling on a royal chef, making some hot dogs and steaks. Like, that's a lot of steaks. Like, there's only four of them, and she's got two packs of hot dogs, three massive steaks for literally just the four of them. I love this ad so much. You can just see just how much stuff people have. I uh, go over one more. You're going to see your, you know, your quote-unquote ordinary 50s housewife, which, by the way, that is just an ad. Nobody ever did housework wearing heels and makeup and dresses like that. Well, they had to wear dresses because that was in style at the time. They didn't have to wear dresses, but it was not uncommon for housewives to wear dresses. Uh, however, you wouldn't normally wear your heels or your pearls or your makeup while doing that, but that's not the real focus. Look at that fridge. My goodness, look at that stuffed fridge that just, like, overloaded with... My gosh, what all do we got there? We have, like, several hams. Like, several whole hams. Whole turkey, it looks like. Several roasts. More beer and soda than you know what to do with. Several desserts. And that's kind of the expectations. You know, we're a people of plenty. Uh, the United States has got so much money, so much stuff... We have more material possessions than anything we've ever had ever before in U.S. history. And that's kind of the mindset you want to have. Just stuff, stuff, stuff. Now, it's not just the upturn in manufacturing that is getting Americans a lot more money, a lot more stuff. Uh, there is a piece of legislation that's passed. It's a really good piece of legislation. Go over one slide. It's called the GI Bill. Uh, when you talk about best pieces of legislation in U.S. history, this is in the top three, I would say. Uh, GI Bill and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act which we're going to talk about next class, uh, they are probably some of the best pieces of legislation, and it really helps with the prosperity of the era. This is one of those times wherever the government is indeed spending money, however, it's getting a lot of money back in taxes. Now, the GI Bill, in short, um, it gives veterans stuff. It just gives veterans of the United States Army, you know, the, the World War II veterans, all sorts of things. Uh, the first thing it gives veterans is low-interest loans. Low-interest loans for all sorts of things. Very, very low-interest loans. Uh, for instance, if you want to get a house, uh, you're able... In fact, go over one more slide. You'll see veterans of buying a farm, home, or business learn about guaranteed loans. Um, you know, in order to get a loan, you have to have some sort of credit history. The U.S. government, because of the GI Bill, is giving these veterans very low-interest loans. I believe some of the house loans were as low as a percent. Like, as low as a percent. That is an amazing uh, APR for, uh, for a house. Uh, if you want to start a business, you can get these very low-interest loans. Uh, my grandfather, for instance. My grandfather, uh, I talked about both my grandfathers before. Uh, my grandfather, who was the warrant officer, my dad's dad, he actually used his GI Bill to start a business. Um, he started a plumbing business, a uh, plumbing supply, actually. He wasn't a plumber himself, but he, you know, sold pipes and pipes and toilets and all sorts of things uh, for uh, plumbers. 
Uh, and he, he used the GI Bill to start it, and he, he did pretty well for himself. He actually did very well for himself with that. Um, unemployment benefits. Uh, unemployment benefits, uh, preferences in applying for a job, and also free medical care. Uh, the free medical care is still around. That's the VA system. Um, this is a way for the government to make money because, you know, for instance, my grandfather, yes, he used, I believe it was like a $10,000 loan to start up uh, Red River, his, his plumbing business. He paid a lot more in, than $10,000 in taxes well over the, his career, uh, well over his ownership of the company. And so it's a way for the U.S. government to make money, and they're making a good bit of money off of it. So much money is made off of this. Um, you know, unemployment for, for soldiers is pretty popular. Uh, preferences of applying for a job. It does not guarantee veterans a job. I might ask you a question about that on a test or a quiz. You know, are veterans guaranteed a job by the, um, the GI Bill? No. They don't guarantee them a job, but they guarantee them preferential treatment and hiring. Basically, they get a better chance of a job. But the big one. Uh, the, the main reason why this gives the federal government so much money, go over one more slide, is college education. This gives college education to veterans. This is, uh, this is registration of the school. Pretty much all these guys are veterans. Uh, before this time, college is still seen as a very upper-class thing. It wasn't super common for ordinary Americans to go to college, mainly because of the price of tuition, which, by the way, tuition in this time period was not as expensive as it is now. Uh, but still, it seems an expense that most Americans can't afford. It seems something a very upper-class thing to do. But the GI Bill changes that. It says, hey, if you're a veteran, if you serve the military, we will pay for your college. We will pay for your tuition. And this is helpful for a lot of different colleges. Tons of different colleges come into existence in this time period because of the GI Bill. Pretty much all these colleges, because they're now getting more federal money, and the federal government's usually pretty good about giving you money because they're the ones who print the money. So these colleges start expanding. Departments get a lot bigger. You have more people in colleges. New colleges are coming up. Uh, for instance, there's a college you might be aware of called Nichols. Comes into uh, being in 1948. We just had our 72nd anniversary of existence. That's clearly because of the GI Bill. Uh, there's so many colleges that come into being around this time period. And so many people go to college in this time period. Now, why is, how is the federal government making money off of this? Well, because people with college degrees make more money, and people who make more money pay more taxes. And so this causes the wages of ordinary Americans to go up. And it, because the, Amer the nation is more educated, that's just good for the country in general, there's so many positive attributes. And let's say you're thinking about ROI. Well, it's hard to get solid numbers on it, but the best I can figure out, the government, remember how the government made about $16 on the interstate commerce, of the interstate highway system? Uh, for all these college educations that the government gave, remember these college graduates do pay taxes later on? I believe for every dollar the U.S. government spent on the GI Bill for college education, it made about $200 back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you could guarantee me an ROI, if I give you a dollar, you give me $200 back, I would quit my job. I love you all, but I would do nothing but keep feeding the $200 meter. Like, if you found a slot machine worth every time you put, you put in a dollar, you got $200, you would not do anything else. And this is just something, a benefit for the entire country. 
it it seems to be great. Now there is some problems. Go over one slide. Oh, these poor guys. I I, I love these guys. It has to do with African Americans. Um, the GI Bill in of itself was not made to be racist. It was not made to be discriminatory. However, the GI Bill had an issue. It said you're if for a college to receive GI Bill money, you know, for, so for a student, for a veteran, to get the money for the GI Bill, they have to go to a fully accredited school, a fully accredited school. Now the thing is, most fully accredited schools in the South, where most African Americans are living, don't accept black students. Uh, for instance, LSU does not accept black students until the '60s. Um, you know. Pretty much all Southern schools don't accept black students, and they're the only fully accredited schools. So, for instance, if you're a black student in the South, let's say you want to go to Southern University or Grambling, neither of those are fully accredited, and you're not going to get your GI Bill money. This isn't necessarily the federal government's fault, but it is shown that African Americans are kind of getting the short end of the stick again. That's that's uh, that's a bit of a bummer. So, like, if you're a, if you're a black person who could like get into Harvard, yes, the GI Bill would pay for it. But let's say you're, you know, you don't have the grades or the wherewithal or the desire to go to Harvard. It probably wouldn't pay for L. Well, it would pay for LSU. You're just not allowed into LSU if you're African American. So as you see, you get something good, and then you're about to get something bad. Okay, let's go one more. more. Um, there was a massive housing shortage after the war. Uh, there just wasn't enough supply. You know, people now want houses. Uh, the GI Bill is, you know, helping you get a mortgage, a very cheap mortgage at that. You might want to buy a house. Uh, now, thanks to the interstate system, people are able to build houses further out. Think Laplace in relation to New Orleans. You know, New Orleans, land is at a premium. It's very expensive to buy a house in New Orleans, especially if you want a lot of land attached to it. But now, thanks to suburbia, you can buy a lot more house with a lot more land. And you can just commute, thanks to the interstate system. It's free, it's cheap, you know, it takes you about as long, thanks to the interstate, to get into the city as it would if you're, like, driving through city traffic. And so the suburbs come up. This kind of becomes the de facto design for the 50s. Suburbs are getting very big, they're very large. Uh, one of the places that really gets this, uh, really starts the whole suburby thing is Levittown. Go over one more slide. Levittown is right outside of New York City. Uh, it's done by a man by Levitt. He is, the, he is the, um, the real estate developer there. As you can tell, there are tons of houses. They all look exactly the same. They're all incredibly cheap, though. Now, you don't have a lot of variation. Go over one more. You have exactly four styles of house. There are four styles of house. There are two bedroom, three bath. I want to say they're like 1,600 square feet. So not the biggest house, not the smallest house. Uh, it comes with, uh, with a fully furnished with appliances. It seems, you know, you don't have that much of a, a variety. Pretty much you're, you're going to look just like your neighbors. Why would you want to move to a place like this? I mean, yes, you get a little bit more land. I think each one's on like on a quarter acre lot, something like that. I bet you're wondering why are people interested in a place like this? Well, I'll tell you why in one word, price. A Levittown house cost $6,990, so about $7,000 for a house. I did the math. That's a $26, sorry, $28 a month mortgage. And if you're a vet, no money down. 
So if you're a veteran, you can buy a very nice house for $7,000, $28 a month, and unlike other think purchases, a house will appreciate in value. I did the math, and I, I kind of you know adjusted it for inflation. These are $86,000 houses, fully furnished with appliances, for about $300 a month. Now, some of you are paying rent or like have an apartment or something. It's not $300 a month. I mean, maybe if you have like a bunch of roommates or you're splitting a house, it might be close to $300 a month. But now you're getting your own house for $300 a month. And it's a good house. It's, it's decently built. Brand new appliances. I mean, Levittown houses still exist. They're in pretty decent shape. They're worth a lot more than $7,000 mm-hmm. more because they're right off of Long Island, right close to New York City. Uh, they're huge. They have all these planned communities. They have planned neighborhoods. They have, like, playgrounds. Schools are within walking distance. Uh, they have little grocery stores you can walk to. It seems to be the perfect place. Everything seems to be normal and wonderful, and it's cheap. And what could possibly be a problem? Well, go over one slide. Yeah, they are incredibly discriminatory. Super discriminatory. Levitt said that his houses were exclusively for members of the Caucasian race, and quote, I can solve the housing problem or a race problem. I can't combine the two. He's like, take your choice. You want me to either you know, get you some houses or figure out racism. I can't do both at the same time. Uh, this actually makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court outlaws the practice of like forbidding people to buy houses, uh, p- forbidding you know, certain races to buy houses from certain neighborhoods. Uh, all it does is it just makes it more discreet. Um, you, do, you have things like country clubs coming up in this time period uh, where basically you have to be a member of the country club. You know, they can't force you to make any people members of a private club. Uh, they start having neighborhood covenants, which is like members of the neighborhood have to like promise to sell only to certain races. Uh, this does not get rid of the racial discrimination just because of the Supreme Court says it's illegal. It just shows that it gets more discreet. So once again, you see, you know, for African Americans, there's a couple steps forward, a couple steps back. Uh, the other thing that happens in this time period. All right, I just want you to imagine before you flip the side. All right, you've got a job. You got a house. You got that sweet, cheap college education. You just beat the Nazis. What are you going to do now? That's right, everybody has a baby. Everybody has a baby. So many babies are born. Oh my gosh, there are so many babies. These are the baby boomers. If you go over one more slide, you will see a nursery in this time period. Everybody's having a kids. Uh, baby boomers are considered to have started being born in 1946, right after the war. Uh, it goes on for about another 10 years or so, 8 to 10 years. Uh, there's no exact number of when the baby boom ends and like Gen X or something begins. Uh, I would say pretty much anybody born in the late 40s to the early 50s could be considered a baby boomer. Uh, my parents were both born in 1950. They are prototypical baby boomers. Uh, so many babies are born. Uh, babies, it, some of you might have babies. Uh, some of you have probably been around babies. Um, everybody here has been a baby at one time, one point in time. Uh, if you've never had a baby before, maybe you have a niece or a nephew. I don't have any kids, but I have nieces and nephews. Uh, babies are a huge business. There is no limit to the amount of money you can spend on a baby. 
Babies cause so cost so much money. You can buy so much junk for a baby. It's amazing. Likewise, remember, the people who were having these babies were the ones who were born during the Great Depression. They didn't have that much. And so they want to give their kids everything. And they do. Uh, baby boomers are just loaded with stuff. They have more material possessions than pretty much any other childhood ever. Um, you know, if I talk to my parents, well, if I talk to my dad about uh, being growing up as a baby boomer, he said, like, there were just kids everywhere. You know, he lived in a neighborhood in Shreveport, um, kind of a suburb of your neighborhood. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like a Levittown, but it was a, it was a new development. Uh, my grandfather, the plumbing supply guy, you know, he bought this house in this kind of brand new neighborhood because it was bordered by uh, cotton fields, so it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. But my dad was like, you know, there are just kids everywhere. Everywhere you went, there were just tons of kids just out on the street. You go anywhere, everybody was a kid, you know. There were plenty of people to play with. Just so many kids. So this seems to be a pretty idealistic time for America. And it's not so surprising that the 50s are viewed very nostalgically, nostalgically, mainly because so many baby boomers are kids during that time period. People tend to view their childhood fairly nostalgically. Now, this is not to say that everything is doing hunky-dory. There are some cracks in suburbia. There are some challenges going on. Uh, the first is the Great Migration. Uh, there's another Great Migration. Um, African-Americans are leaving the South in even higher numbers. Uh, they go to places like Detroit, which they've kind of begun to for a while anyway, but they, you know, further out west, uh, to more cities. Uh, they are finding housing discrimination ingrained in places like Detroit and other places. However, because they're emboldened by the Double V campaign, uh, there's more organization to make a push for civil rights. Uh, Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, uh, comes about, it gets a lot bigger in this time period. The NAACP also doubles in size. So, you know, in about 30 minutes or so, I'm going to start getting into the civil rights movement itself. But just know this is kind of the build-up to it. Outside of black Americans, uh, Latino Americans are also um, immigrating. Uh, they get full use of the GI Bill. Uh, Latino Americans get full use of the GI Bill. And so they're able to leave from places like Puerto Rico. By the way, Puerto Rico, they're all U.S. citizens, been that way for a while. Uh, they're able to get to move their families to the mainland. So they go to places like New York, uh, get the college education. Uh, there's a lot more colleges and better colleges in the U.S. than there are in Puerto Rico. So many of these Puerto Rican vets go to the, uh, New York. This is where you get something like West Side Story, you know, the Puerto Rican gangs in New York. Uh, the other issue is women. Women are transitioning back. After the war, women by and large left their manufacturing jobs. Uh, there's a huge emphasis on being a good wife and mother, which is shown on TV, which shows like Leave it a Beaver. Uh, I'll show you a quick picture. Uh, for instance, you go over, you know, the idea of being the pretty and happy housewife is seen as what is supposed to be, you know, that's the ideal for women, supposedly. Go back to go back to the to the house, clean your dishes, go one more, one more. you know, support your husband. That's where you're going to get your uh, your happiness in life from. There's a huge push on getting married and getting married very young. Um, the average age of a bride fell to 19. Your average bride goes down in age to about 19. Uh, before this time, we're talking early 20s, maybe 22, 21. Uh, goes down to 19. Nowadays, I believe the average first bride is about 28, 29. I think men are about 30, uh, the average uh, of, of their first marriage. 
Uh, they are allowing women to go to college. Some women do go to college. If you go over one more, I love this picture so much. This is uh, the women of the University of Alabama Rifle Club. Gosh, <laughs> look at them. They're so funny. They're, they got their rifles. Uh, if women do go to college, about more than a fourth of them wed while they're in school, and most of them drop out before receiving a degree. Uh, the idea is to go to college to meet a guy. Um, meet your future husband. Uh, college is a good place to meet a mate. Um, I, I'm sure some of y'all are interested in meeting people of the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever you're into while you're at college. You know, if we were in class, I'd make a joke about look around and, you know, find your mate. Um, you know, college is a decent place to meet people because you have a lot of people with the same interests and same goals in life, you know, all in the same environment. Uh, like I said, about a fourth of them wed while in school. Most women drop out. It's called getting the M... They jokingly called it getting the MRS degree. MRS. Okay, fine. Um, and so there's this big emphasis on getting married, as you can see right here. You know, this bride stuff. Go over one more slide. Uh, the problem is, you know, being a pretty and popular suburban housewife, a lot of women find it to be lonely. You know, the suburbs are about a bit more remote. Uh, they, they find that their lives are not fulfilled. Uh, they have too much free time. Uh, this, is not, this is not degrading housework by any means, but because of appliances and things, the amount of straight-up work that had to be done in housework uh, is cut tremendously. This is not to downgrade anybody who wants to be a housewife. That's a great job. It's a, it's a very honorable job, you know, raising kids and staying at home. That's great for anybody. But if you don't want to do it, that's the problem. And a lot of these women find, you know, why did I go to college? You know, if yeah, it might have just been a guy, but, you know, I, I learned some stuff. You know, I, I majored in something. I, I want to do something great about it. A primo example of that is my grandmother. My grandmother, my mother's mother. So uh, she went to college. She graduated with a degree in business. And the problem was she couldn't find a job because... Nobody would hire her. Nobody would hire her. And so even though she had a degree in business and accounting, uh, the first job she was able to get was a typing teacher. A typing teacher. So if a woman does work in this time period, if a woman does work in the 50s, it's for a lot less money and a lot, lot less prestige than it was before. A lot less prestige. I mean, no, no offense to being a typing teacher. and it, She was a substitute typing teacher, either, too. But my grandmother could have been a CPA. You know, she could have been a CPA. She had the degree in accounting. However, because of the 50s, she was pretty much forced to be a typing teacher. She didn't hate typing, and she liked it okay, and she typed for a while. But then when she got married, they expected her to, like, give up her job because, you know, she had a husband now, my grandfather. Uh, like I said, different grandfather. This is the one who was a carpenter. Uh, yeah, no, my grandmother was really good with money, too. It was kind of funny. She, uh, she was able to keep her, like, account down to the penny. So, go, go, go grandma. Uh, 70% of women who did work. 70% of women who did work. So, if women, if women chose to work, or had to need to work, 70% of women who did work were clerical work, uh, secretaries. Uh, if you have a college degree, which is professional work, quote-unquote professional work, that's about 15% of the working women. Uh, They're pretty much in two jobs. The two jobs available for, for women, if you had a college degree, are teacher or nurse. It was almost like a draft. Um, I'm not saying there were no other, 
jobs available for women who had college degrees. But by and large, if you're a woman with a college degree, you were either a teacher or a nurse. Uh, my grandmother is a pre primo example. You know, she could have been a CPA, could have been an accountant. I mean, she should have, in a different world. However, they would not even look at her, so she had to become a typing teacher. Uh, the other thing that happens is there's a big push towards religion. Everybody starts going to church. Uh, church attendance is higher in the 1950s than any other time in U.S. history. Uh, it's seen as a way to combat, quote-unquote, godless communism. Remember, communism is theoretically uh, a-religious. It's theoretically anti-religion. And so it's viewed as like, hey, I can't be a communist. I'm a good Christian. Uh, they also do things like add in God we trust to the to the pledge of uh, sorry not to the pledge. It adds under God to the pledge. My bad, under God. It adds under God to the pledge of allegiance. That's added in the fifties. Um, in addition, it adds um, in God we trust to the money. In God we trust is the money. Uh, there is a Supreme Court case that outlaws compulsory school prayer. That means like mandatory school prayer. However, that's pretty much the only thing that has to do with that. Pretty much the rest of the country is viewed as you got to be a good in religion to be, and a good Christian to be a good American. Uh, theologically, you know, I talk about theology sometimes in this class. It's a very light and fluffy form of Christianity. It uh, really affirms conformity. It sell, it's quote-unquote selling love, joy, and the gospel. Uh, you have things like the power of positive thinking that comes out in this time period, Normalism Appeal. It's a very... It's not a very theologically deep form of Christianity, shall we say. Um, I could talk about this for a while, and I think I've mentioned maybe one of these days I need to do like a American religion, history of religion in America course, because I could go on this for a while. But just know, the Christianity that's popular in the 1950s is very, I don't want to say watered down, but it's not as uh, orthodox as other times in U.S. history or possibly nowadays. Uh, rock and roll. Rock and roll also gets big in this time period. Rock and roll had been around for a while. Uh, it had been seen as too black and too sexual. Uh, that's the main controversy about rock and roll. It's seen as too sexual. It's seen as too black. Most of the early rock and rollers are black. However, because of the rise in money and the rise of new forms of communication, like uh, you know, radio and uh, records getting cheaper, uh, Sam Phillips, who's a Memphis DJ, he sounds, he says, quote, if I could find a white man with a Negro sound, I could make a billion dollars. And guess what? He does, because he discovers Elvis Presley. That's pretty much Elvis Presley's thing. Elvis Presley is a white kid from the wrong side of the tracks in Tupelo, and he sings like a black guy, because the high school he went to in Memphis was mainly a black high school, and he's very sexual. Um, you know, Elvis the pelvis, they wouldn't show him from the hips down. Um, fun story about Elvis. My wife's aunt Eileen went on a date with him. My wife's family, my wife's mother, is from the Tupelo area, and so whenever she was like fairly young, uh, Elvis asked her out. Just you know, he was not Elvis. He was just you know Elvis Presley, the kid from around the neighborhood. Uh, Elvis asked her out to a movie. They went to a movie together. Elvis didn't have any money, and so Aunt Eileen had to pay for their date. And she was like, as famous as he got, he never paid me back. And I was like, man, Eileen, if you played your cards right, you could have been Mrs. Presley, and we could be living a lot better than we are now. But anyway, that's Elvis. He gets really big. Um, it's actually kind of funny. Elvis was so sexual, he was considered to be communist. All right, get ready for some logic here. 
Okay. Because he's so sexual, he must be against religion. And if he's against religion, he must be communist. I, I love 50s logic. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you go over one more slide, you will see young girls screaming over Elvis. That's not too unusual. So that kind of does it for suburbia. That's kind of the 1950s culture. Um, you know, it, it seemed kind of light, kind of fluffy, but there were some scars underneath it, some kind of deep rifts going on. Uh, let's talk about the Civil Rights Movement. We're getting into the Civil Rights Movement for a while. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement, we gotta, it kind of starts with um, Eisenhower. Uh, African Americans are really ready to make a big push. Uh, a lot of it actually has to do with the Cold War. Uh, the Civil Rights Movement and Cold War are very, very, very interconnected. They're very tied together. Uh, the USSR had used Jim Crow for a long time as propaganda against the U.S., Basically telling third world countries, this is why you should not mess around with the USA. This is not why you should ally with the USA. You know, they could tell an Asian or African country, hey, what makes you think the United States is going to treat you any better? Look what they do to people your color in their own country. You know, this is how the U.S. people treats people of your ancestry, people who look like you in their own country. What makes you think they're going to treat non-American citizens even better? Now, Eisenhower himself is not that for segregation, all right? He's actually somewhat against segregation, but he's not willing to work too hard for it. He's very even-keeled. Remember, he's not a radical. He's not trying to rock the boat. Uh, he does do things like desegregate army bases. Uh, the army itself have been desegregated under Truman. Units have been desegregated under Truman. Uh, he desegregates army bases. He also desegregates Washington, D.C. He's able to do this, though, as a cost-cutting measure. He says, you know, I'm saving the federal government money, I'm saving John Q. taxpayer money by saying, hey, why do we have to build two army bases, let's just build one, and everybody can train there. However, Eisenhower realizes if he pushes too hard, particularly in the South, uh, they're going to have backlash. He says the backlash is going to be the main problem. He's afraid people are going to get mad. If he pushes desegregation too much, he's afraid of the backlash. He's afraid that there's going to be, like, racist, racial backlash. And that's not something that he wants to deal with. Now, to help him out with this, he is appointing the conservative governor of a fairly conservative state, uh, California, named Earl Warren. I bet you're wondering, wait a second, Earl, wait, 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 California, conservative? Yeah, uh, believe it or not, California is actually considered to be a fairly conservative state in this time period. Uh, pop, I mean, California is just so large of a population, it actually has a lot of conservatives in there. Um, so that's not too unusual in itself. Warren is fairly conservative as governor of California, and um, Eisenhower appoints him chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he's expecting that when he gets on the Supreme Court, he's going to keep this very conservative mindset. That's not what happens. In fact, Eisenhower would later say that appointing Earl Warren to the Supreme Court was, quote, the biggest damn fool mistake I ever made in my life. So, there you go. The biggest damn fool mistake he ever made was appointing uh, Earl Warren, because Earl Warren, once he gets on the Supreme Court bench, actually gets fairly liberal. He actually starts going pretty liberal on terms of civil rights. Now, this kind of emboldens African-American organization, and most notably the NAACP, who's long been working 
in court cases. They've had a lot of success with court cases. Uh, thanks to their young legal eagle, Thurgood Marshall. Know the name because he is later going to become a justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, he is in charge of their legal team, and they're challenging uh, civil rights cases. Now, the first early one you need to know about, well, not the first early one, this is not actually one of the early ones, this is actually one of the later ones, is Brown v. Board. Uh, Brown v. Board of Education, it's in Topeka, Kansas. It's a class action case, it's a lot of different cases. Uh, the, the person itself is Brown, she's a young girl. She's a, I believe she's a first grader. She's a daughter of a minister, uh, her dad's also been a vet, he's got a job. Uh, she lives le less than a mile away from a white school, but she's bused to a black school about 20 miles away. And she is seen as a very sympathetic case for the movement. You know, why should this little girl be put under the pressure of going 20 miles to school whenever there's a perfectly good white school less than a mile away from her house? Now, the verdict in this case is delivered in 1954. Did I say 57? I totally meant 54. Sorry, my, okay, my Dotson is, like, trying to growl in my lap, so. Say hi, Molly. Okay, she's, like, talking. So, 1954, uh, the case is delivered. Earl Warren delivers the majority opinion. And it's, I believe it's unanimous, actually. That, uh, separate but equal, which should have been the law of the land. That was something that Plessy v. Ferguson decided, like, 50 years prior. Sorry, my Dotson is getting uh, all comfortable. It says it cannot exist. You know, if if the Supreme Court was going purely on case law, which is something that is kind of the bedrock of the legal system, they would have kept up with Plessy v. Ferguson and upheld segregation. However, they argue in the majority opinion that segregation is inherently unequal. You can't have separate but equal. And that we should get rid of desegregation. Now, in all the excitement, there isn't anything about when this is going to take place. So the next year, in 1955, there's a second decision, Brown v. Board 2, and the Supreme Court says something... God, it's a very aggravating phrase. When asked when desegregation should occur, the Supreme Court doesn't give a deadline. It says it should occur with, quote, all deliberate speed. Now, what's aggravating about that is that it doesn't hold you anything. So, for instance, if I told you, hey, finish the quiz by Tuesday, you'll know it's due by Tuesday. But if I tell you, hey, finish the quiz with all deliberate speed, when are you literally going to turn that in to me? Legitimately. When are you going to turn it in? That's the case here. And that's a little bit aggravating. Um, Eisenhower is actually upset by this decision, uh, not that he's for segregation, he's afraid of the backlash. He says that it's going to force people to do things they don't want, and it's going to cause a backlash. And he's right, because the South is rebelling all over the place. We're going to get into that in a second. Uh, the other thing that happens is a test case in 1955, if you go over one more, actually go over two more, is the Montgomery bus boycott. It's another test case by the NAACP. Uh, Montgomery, like all other, studies, uh, all other southern cities, has segregated transportation. There are bus systems throughout the south. Now, here's the thing. Even though they are segregated, African Americans make up a majority of the riders. Okay, Most of the people who ride these buses in southern cities are black. 
So they make up a bulk of the customer base. They make up a bulk of the fares. They're the ones who pay money. Now, Rosa Parks is a 40-year-old married part-time... Sorry, she's not a part-time seamstress. She's a full-time seamstress and a part-time secretary for the NAACP. And she gets arrested for not giving up her uh, seat to a white passenger. Now, is she a plant? Er, I can't say one way or the other. She is definitely well-versed in, um, you know, passive resistance. She's gone to different, like, you know, seminars and stuff on how to do it. She's been working in the NAACP. There was a case earlier in Montgomery where a, I believe she is 15 years old, uh, unwed pregnant teenager, uh, is arrested for doing the same thing. She is not seen as a very good face of the movement. Our early civil rights movement is all about respectability. The idea that, like, you can't hate on these people because of anything other than their blackness. They, they're trying to get people who are good, upstanding citizens so that there's no way to discriminate against them except for the color of their skin. Um, in response to Rosa Parks being arrested, go over one slide. The city of Montgomery and the, the black community has a much well-planned, well-organized, long-planned-out boycott. Um, they, they had the infrastructure in place. There had actually been a shorter boycott in Baton Rouge a couple of years earlier. Uh, the Baton Rouge bus boycott only lasted for about a week. It's actually pretty effective. Actually, uh, some of the leaders, like Nixon and not... Woo! Well, Joe Nixon. Not, not, not Richard Nixon, but there's a NAACP leader by the name of Nixon in Montgomery. And Dr. King go to Baton Rouge to kind of ask around, like, hey... How's this going to work out? Uh, the boycott lasts for 381 days. Go for one more page. Dr. King becomes a spokesperson for it. Uh, he is a picked as a spokesperson, not because he's a real leader. There are other people who are actually more in charge of it. Uh, it's because he's a very good speaker. He's fairly young. He's 26 years old in this time period. Uh, he's a good speaker. He's good looking. He has kids. He's, he's kind of seen as the best face of the movement. Uh, he is arrested for this. He writes his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which, if you ever get a chance to read it, I I'd highly recommend reading it. If we have more time, I'd get into more into it or actually make you read it, but we don't have the time, sadly. Um, at the end of the, at the boycott, the uh, buses do indeed desegregate in December of 1956. Uh, King gets a lot of popularity. He gets seen as like kind of a, a mover and shaker. He'll become kind of a figurehead of the civil rights movement later on. It is important to know that Dr. King never works alone. Uh, he's never a single figure. I mean, I know we get, you know, MLK Day, but even he'll be the first one to tell you, like, he does not do this alone. He has a huge infrastructure behind him. Now, Parks and her husband actually leave Montgomery after a while, um, actually almost immediately after this. They move to Detroit because they're getting numerous death threats, and that's where uh, Rosa Parks lives out the rest of her lights is in Detroit. So the next thing that happens is 1957, still having to do with desegregation of schools. Um, this happens in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Basically, the Brown v. Board has been delayed by pretty much every possible tactic in the South pretty much since the decision had been made. Uh, this is why I got confused about 54 and 57. 54 is a Brown decision, 57 is Little Rock. Uh, the South tries to think up ways to get around desegregation. 
Uh, one of the most common ways is private academies. You start having these desegregation academies put up across the entire South. These secular uh, private schools. Uh, you've had religious private schools like Catholic schools for forever, but now you're having secular academies. I, I think probably the best ones I can think of, best example of this, is in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. I used to live in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Jackson Academy and Jackson Prep are two of these schools. Uh, Jackson Academy was made in the 50s as a segregation academy. Jackson Prep came about later in the, I believe, the late 60s or early 70s. Uh, pretty much the main quality of being admitted to these schools was being white. Uh, now this has changed since and they've since desegregated, but still, there are all these academies across the entire South, secular academies. Uh, Central High School is a public school in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's the main school in Little Rock, Arkansas. It needs to be desegregated. And so nine students are chosen. Uh, you'll see pictures of the Little Rock Nine. I know there are ten people there. One of them is just an uh, older female friend. Uh, they're all very good students. They come from good families, you know, no criminal background. Their parents are married. They're all involved in churches. Their parents have jobs. Their dads are veterans. You know, basically, they're trying to figure out a way so that they're the most clean, respectable, best students, best examples of this. They are chosen to desegregate the school. And when they go to school, as you can see, one more picture, it does not go very well. Uh, they get called the N-word. There's all these sorts of talks of lynching. Uh, when they actually get to the school, the school door is locked, and they are not allowed to go into class. It seems too dangerous. Now, Eisenhower has a choice. Like I said, Eisenhower's a pretty level-headed dude. He's, he's actually somewhat sympathetic to the plight of the Southerners. He's like, you know, people don't want to be forced to be with people they don't want to be with. But the problem is, he's like, nobody's going to deny the power of the federal government. We had a civil war. You know, states just can't choose to do their own thing because they don't want to do that. So to help out, he sends in the National Guard. Go over one more slide. Uh, he sends in the National Guard. Uh, they go in. The National Guard you know, desegregates the school. The nine students go to class. And shockingly, it's actually, actually fairly anticlimactic. Uh, they go to class, and they learn about algebra and, and stuff. Uh, probably due in large part to most of the parents or most of the students who had major issues with going to school with black students had left, so pretty much the only students left were the ones who were okay with it. Um, even the first day, um, one, of, one of the black students is invited to like eat lunch with white students, and they just talk, and they discover that, hey, you know, we have a lot of stuff in common. And, you know, this class right now, there's black students and white students, and other races, and it's all cool because you're all students and you're all kids, and, you know, it's fine. You find out you have a lot of stuff in common. So the students actually seem to be cool with it. The outside world is not. In response, the governor of Arkansas decides to close Little Rock High School rather than allow integration. In fact, he closes all Little Rock High Schools. In fact, they close all public schools for a while. Even in Virginia, they close all public schools, and Virginia wasn't under any real desegregation. Still, it shows that things are starting to happen. Schools are starting to desegregate. This is going to be something that we're going to talk about more when we get to the 60s and the quote-unquote proper civil rights movement. Uh, the other thing I do want you to mention, if you go back several, is the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Council comes into play. Um, not much to say here. Um, pretty much is exactly what it says on the tin. It is a collection of different uh, pastors and other Christian leaders, different preachers. 
Uh, Dr. King is appointed president. This is pretty much the organization he's most involved with as we get on later to the civil rights movement. Uh, they're planning to do more stuff in the future. Uh, we do have to talk about the Cold War. We do have to talk about the Cold War because it's Cold War time. Uh, the first thing that happens is Stalin dies. Uh, Stalin does indeed die uh, shortly after shortly after uh, Eisenhower was inaugurated. Nobody saw this common. Uh, Stalin found the one thing he couldn't defeat, death. Uh, the new head of Russia is Nikita Khrushchev. Go over one. You will see Nikita Khrushchev. Um, bit of a farm boy. He's totally unlike Stalin. He admitted that, hey, Stalin made a couple mistakes. Stalin was a little bit too brutal. Uh, Stalin would never say something like that. Uh, Khrushchev is just an interesting character. Like I said, he's a farm boy. Um... When he is invited to come to the United States, they say, hey, if you could go anywhere in America, where would you want to go? And he says, well, I want to go to Disneyland and meet John Wayne. And they're like, uh, okay, Khrushchev, we cannot guarantee your security at, uh, at Disney World. Likewise, we talked to John Wayne. He really doesn't want to meet you because he doesn't like you. Um, so what's the second place you want to go? So I want you to imagine, if you could go anywhere in the United States and Disneyland is off the table, where would you want to go? If, you, if you'd only heard about the United States, where would you want to go? Well, Cruz Jeff knows where he wants to go. He wants to go, go over one more, to Iowa! That's right, Cruz Jeff is fascinated by Iowa. He's fascinated by corn. Um, he, he wants to know the secrets of corn, because he's like, hey, you know, I'm a farm boy, I want food for the Russians, Russia's always struggling behind the economy. Uh, in case you don't know it, corn is in everything. Pretty much everything you eat has corn in it in some form or fashion. And so Khrushchev wants to know about the corn. Now, it's not all happy because that same trip he does go to the United Nations, bangs his shoe on the table, says things like, we will bury you. So it's not all happy hunky-dory, but that's the new guy in charge of uh, the Soviet Union. Another thing major that happens is the battle at Dien Bien Phu. That's going to become pop, uh, popular more important as we get into Vietnam. Uh, in 1954, France loses Indochina. Uh, French Indochina had been a French colony for quite a while. That's three modern-day countries of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Uh, that was all known as French Indochina. Uh, remember that um, France, like England, was talking about decolonization after World War II, uh, they're kind of doing it somewhat slowly. However, at Dien Bien Phu, which is a battle in North Vietnam, they're beaten by Ho Chi Minh. Uh, there he is right there, Ho Chi Minh, Uncle Ho. Know the name. He's going to become much more important when we get into the Vietnam War. Uh, he is able to kick out the, the French and is under communist influence fairly early. Uh, in response, uh, Eisenhower sends aid to the president of South Vietnam, uh, Nhom Dien Bien. I just know his last name, D-I-E-M, Diem. We'll get into Diem when we talk about uh, the Vietnam War some more. Actually, when we get into uh, next class, when we get into Kennedy. Uh, by 1957, there's a new group called the Viet Cong launching guerrilla attacks against the South. And so Eisenhower starts sending more supplies. Uh, he is able to justify it via domino theory, uh, containment and the Truman Doctrine. Uh, Keenan, who we talked about uh, early in the Cold War, even he's like, uh, yeah, Vietnam's not that important. Um, I just need to know this about Vietnam because 
we're going to get into Vietnam a lot more when we get into the Vietnam War and Kennedy. But just know it's it's a kind of a long feuding thing. You know, the French are kicked out at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. The Viet Cong really comes into power in 1957. That's theoretically the beginning of the Vietnam War. U.S. involvement doesn't get larger until the 60s. Also in 1957, a little beeping ball scares the crap out of the Americans. It's called Sputnik, which means traveler in Russian. Um, it's a it's the first artificial man-made satellite. It goes up into space. It circles the Earth like once or twice. Uh, the main thing that's really scary for the Americans is that this is something that the U.S. does not have. So it's scary enough that the Russians now have nuclear bombs, which is something the Ru Americans had first. Now the Russians have gotten even further than the Americans. America does not have a space program. People are terrified that maybe the Russians will put nukes up there. They'll be able to nuke America from space. Um... A little while later, they send up Sputnik 2, which actually has a dog in it. Her name's Laka. Uh, Laka doesn't survive the voyage, sadly. Uh, the Russians later on said they felt really bad about it because they're like, man, it was a really sweet dog. Uh, they picked a street dog because they figured uh, street dogs would be more, you know, tougher than, um, than uh, like, purebred dogs. Uh, she's actually still stuffed. Uh, you can go to a museum in Russia and see her. They, they taxidermied her afterwards. So that's Laka. Um, this really scares the crippity crap out of America. It changes education. Uh, the science is more emphasized where you have things like the new math. Uh, they have all these articles like, you know, in, in Russia, in Soviet Russia, you know, kids as young as seven are learning nuclear physics. They're not actually. But they're saying that, hey, we need to improve education, emphasize, you know, math and sciences so we don't get behind the Russians. Uh, Khrushchev also threatens West Berlin. Remember, the Berlin had been split. Berlin had been split. And, you know, Stalin is kind of, uh, Stalin didn't care for West Berlin very much. Uh, Khrushchev calls it, quote-unquote, a bone in his throat. He's like, you know, this is a bone, I'm, I'm choking on it, I'm going to spew it out. Uh, he threatens to take over West Berlin by a certain deadline. Eisenhower responds with, we will hit you with literally everything you have if, we have a, if you make a move towards Berlin. Uh, the deadline passes with no change, but the two agree that they should meet in person. They do meet in person in September of 1959. This is called the U-2 Summit because of what happens here. It's a trap. Because uh, before they have a chance to meet, uh, a U-2 spy plane, uh, it's a very high atmosphere spy plane, is shot down over Russia. It's a total trap for Eisenhower because Eisenhower doesn't know that we have spy planes over Russia, let alone he doesn't know that it got shot down. Uh, the plane got shot down, and the pilot was captured alive by the Russians. And so whenever they meet, um, Khrushchev says, oh yeah, it's so sad, what happened to your spy plane? And Eisenhower's like, that's impossible. We don't have spy planes. Certainly not spy planes over Russia. And Khrushchev says, well, we have the spy plane a lot. We have the spy plane crashed. The pilot is alive. And we have the pictures he took. Eisenhower was furious about this. Eisenhower was like, why didn't y'all tell me about this? Why didn't you tell me that a spy plane got shot down? Um, why didn't you tell me that the Russians had captured the pilot? Uh, Eisenhower does not mind lying to the Russians. He just wants to know he's rushing about it. In the, he, he just wants to know he's lying about it in the first place. He does not want to be blindsided about this. This chills the Cold War immensely, and both sides kind of pull back. Um, as we get into the '60s and, and you know, and Kennedy and uh, LBJ, 
Cold War is going to heat up a little bit more, but it's a very icy part of the Cold War. The tensions are getting higher. You know, under Kennedy, we get the closest we ever do to full-out nuclear war. But if you go one more slide, we're just going to do a quick summation of the 50s. Um, despite these issues, the 50s are married very fondly, and, and so is Eisenhower. For his faults, he doesn't keep the country very even-keeled. He doesn't make relations with the Russians any better, but they certainly weren't any worse. Eisenhower also does something that pretty much no other president has done since. Uh, during his two terms, no U.S. soldiers died. Uh, Eisenhower was very much against war. Eisenhower said, I will do whatever it takes not to have another war. I will talk to whoever I need to talk to. You know, if, if it... If I can prevent people from dying, I'm willing to do it. And he's the... Ever since Eisenhower, at least one U.S. soldier has died during every president's term. Not under Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower gives a farewell address uh, in which he warns the country against, quote, a growing military-industrial complex. He says that there are people making money about the U.S. going into war and arming people over war. He says we need to be sure that these uh, this industry doesn't get too big and that it doesn't overrun the entire country. He says he does not like war. He says he's had enough war. And that he'll talk to whoever he wants to prevent it. And that's something I've actually seen. Uh, a lot of my veteran friends, a lot of my friends who've actually like gone to Iraq or gone to Afghanistan, they don't like war. They're, they're not like gung-ho to get involved in another war. They're like, it's... You know, we work really hard and they're not trying to like, you know downplay the sacrifices of their friends and comrades, but it's like, you know, war, war should not be a first resort, and that's something that Eisenhower strongly does. But the main reason the 50s are, are remembered so fondly is purely because of the economy. The economy is doing amazing. This is probably the strongest the U.S. economy has ever been. Uh, the 90s are about as close as it gets. Uh, there are tons of kids. I mean, remember, people tend to view their childhoods very nostalgically. Uh, babies view their childhoods very nostalgically. Uh, there's so, so many new technologies. TVs come about for the first time. Uh, yeah, TV dinners, new appliances, so much material possessions. Uh, that's all about to change very dramatically when we get into the 60s. In some ways, the 50s and 60s are akin in terms of material possessions, but the level of tension is a lot higher when we get into the 1960s. With that said, though, that does it for the 50s. Uh, you have a quiz... As soon as you finish sharing this, the quiz is done. Uh, you're not going to have any quizzes over spring break. I might drop a podcast or two. That's just mainly for my pacing purposes. You don't have to listen to it over spring break. But uh, just so I'm not like recording a ton of podcasts when this is over. So with that, this is Dr. Tully. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye.